If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, do you remember COVID-19? Of course you do, and we certainly remember it. And by the way, make sure you get all your shots up to date. Uh, when we were in the midst of the global pandemic, it seemed we talked to this person almost every day or every other day or once a week uh, to keep us up to date on what the heck was going on. And towards the latter parts of the global pandemic, we started to hear the term long COVID. It is still around. What does it mean? And what for those that are still suffering from it? Dr. Isaac Bogosh is with us, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Isaac, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to chat. Hope you're doing well as well. It's, uh, boy, it wasn't that long ago, Isaac, when we were talking, it seemed, and you were all over TV and newscasts and such. Thank goodness we're beyond that. But what is long COVID? We heard a lot, of, uh, a bit about this coming out of the pandemic. Uh, obviously, that's, that, that's a ways ago. There are still people suffering. What exactly is it? How does it affect the people? Yeah. So for starters, I mean, we've known for a long, long time that people can have more chronic manifestations following their acute infection. So this is not a new phenomenon. I know many people became obviously acutely aware of the field of infectious diseases uh, during the pandemic when we were all glued to our TV and our phones about this. And it's great that uh, people learn more. I think, you know, a, a more health literate population is always a good thing. But, you know, we've known about chronic manifestations following acute infection for ages, and that, that can persist following any type of illness. COVID is the same. So we know that some people, after they're infected with COVID, you know, they might get sick and feel really crummy, then recover from that acute illness. But some people have longer lasting symptoms, mainly fatigue, sometimes shortness of breath. And the term that we're using for this is, is long COVID. Um, it's real. It's a problem. It needs to be dealt with. Uh, and does this, or what I'm, what I'm trying to understand here, Isaac, and what you're saying is that uh, many flus, whatever other diseases, you will have the same sort of situation that happens with a certain segment of the population. Why is it them? Uh, do they have uh, other illnesses that perhaps uh, manifest with this? Why a certain segment of the population? Yeah, no, it's, it's not entirely clear. That's that's a great question, and that really is the million-dollar question. You know, can we predict who this will happen to? We provide better support for those people, and, you know, obviously better yet, let's look upstream and prevent infections or reduce the risk of infections in the first place. And, you know, it, it, can, be, it can be debilitating. Um, I think the key thing here with COVID is we've got to be very careful with some of the data that's out there. And sometimes we see data presented that gets, just for lack of a better word, sensationalized. And, you know, when we talk about data, it's important to remember that not all data is the same and not all data is created equally. We have high caliber data. We have low caliber data, high quality data, low quality data. It's all still data. But we've seen the amplification of a lot of low-quality data when it comes to the long COVID world. And I think we do patients a tremendous disservice by amplifying it and sometimes sensationalizing this. I'm not saying this is you or anyone else. I'm just saying this is what happened. So, you know, the key here is have some good quality data, you know, and, and, and these are fundamental principles to doing a study, right? You have to compare whatever you're looking at with a control group. It's better to look at it prospectively than it is retrospectively. You know, it's better to have standardized definitions of what you're studying than, you know, loose definitions of what you're studying. It's good to adhere to smart research protocols than, than not. And we've seen a lot of, I would just say, mediocre to poor quality data in the long COVID world. And I think it's really troubling because it doesn't allow us to really handle the problem as well as we can. So uh, what should we know here? What shouldn't we know? What's your understanding of that data? What's the message we should be receiving here? Well, I mean, I think there's some positive news. And the positive news is that long COVID is less common in the Omicron era, which we've been in for almost two years, than as compared to prior variants. We know it's less likely in those who have been vaccinated. Um, and, of course, preventing COVID infections is is always a smart approach so we don't have to deal with long COVID. And, you know, we can reduce our risk of infection by you know, staying home when we're sick, ensuring our kids stay home from school when they're sick. You can wear a mask in an indoor setting when there's a lot of COVID out there to prevent infection. We can improve the quality of our indoor air to reduce the risk of infection. There's lots of steps we can take to reduce the risk of COVID and, of course, other respiratory infections as well, especially at this time of year when we know a lot of them are circulating.
How do you know if you have long COVID? Uh, you said fatigue, uh, y- you know, just uh, lack of concentration, that sort of thing. You know, that could be related to a lot of different things. How do you know? That's exactly it. So, I mean, that's one of the problems with long COVID research. Right. If I ask the general public right now, who's tired? I bet 100% of people have raised their Yeah. Guess yeah. what else? Uh, yeah. If you look around, about every single person has also had COVID and recovered from COVID. You know, mm-hmm. depending on the, what studies you read, it's, you know, upwards of 70 to 90 percent of the population. Does that mean 70 to 90 percent of the population has long COVID? Of course not. Of course not. So you have to do this methodolog- in a methodologically sound manner. You know, I think some people are working on some neat things like blood tests, looking at what are called biomarkers. So different things you can look for in the blood that might be a clue. But I think it's it's. I think it's a messy field, and I think we need some better quality prospective studies to elucidate the true impact of this in the current era. So you really can't test to see if a person's got long COVID. Can you do that with a blood test or anything like that? No, and don't believe yeah. anyone that's selling you a blood test. Some places are marketing you know, blood tests looking at yeah. long COVID. It's not true. Listen, there's some promising research looking at different biomarkers that might be helpful but I sure. would timestamp this right now. I would say nothing is really commercially available that we would be using that would say, here's a blood test that tells you if you have long COVID or not. And again, I think the key point here is it's not nearly as common as it once was earlier in the pandemic. Vaccinations can lower our risk. Reducing COVID, uh, getting COVID reduces our risk. And again, like anything else, you know, life, life, life will continue to go on. Things are better now than they were earlier in the pandemic, thankfully. So, and, uh, and, you know, I think we'll be okay. We just have to take a few precautions over the winter to protect ourselves and those around us. All right. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thanks so much time for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. All right. We've, uh, we've talked to Olivia Mackay from the CHML Children's Fund. Of course, uh, uh, the, the CHML Children's Fund and the CHML Trisp- uh, Christmas Tree of Hope campaign in full swing in uh, lots of ways for you to help us help the kids at uh, 900CHML.com. But we've been talking about how it's been difficult for a lot of charities that are doing and centering around toys simply because of affordabil- affordability issues. It's A lot of people have just less to give because of their own situation. And one of those challenges Charities or the types of charities that have been hit are uh, toys because, um, you know, again, it's just it's it's more of an effort. It's it's uh, dropping them off. And again, more just there's more people having less and less income uh, to do this. So I just want to make a reminder that the CHML Children's Fund uh, has the return of Operation Santa Claus toy truck. Remember, Jimmy Lomax started this uh, way back when. So if you got a toy drive, your office, your workplace, uh, don't have any place to uh, donate them. uh, And we can always help with that. We are a conduit between the charities and, of course, you. You can drop off your donations uh, to select Hamilton Fire Department locations, uh, the downtown Hamilton BIA office, and at 900 CHML. You can arrange for a uh, pickup from your workplace. Call Olivia Mackay at the station, and she will, of course, uh, get the toy truck out there and uh, and pick those up for you. We donate to charities including Good Shepherd, YMCA, Mission Services, Interval House, uh, Women's uh, women's Centers, Neighbor to Neighbor, Big Brothers and Sisters, and more. The toy truck cutoff date is Sunday, December 17th. So for more info, call Olivia McKay on all of this. Uh, and Operation uh, Santa Claus Toy Truck presented by Leggett, Drive Safe, Michael St. Jean, Realty, When Life Changes, and the Hamilton Fire Department, and 900 CHML. So, and just an idea of some of the stuff that's needed because we all think of kids, we think of toys, but we forget the teens and we forget the babies. So uh, perfume gifts, gift sets, makeup gift sets, bath and body type of uh, body and bath type of items, uh, personal toiletries, baby formula, food, diapers, hats, gloves, scarves, nail polish sets, um, hair products such as straighteners, etc., axe gift sets, that sort of thing. And again, at the radio station, Michael St. Jean Realty on Wilson Street, the downtown Hamilton uh, BIA, West End Sports, and all of the fire departments uh, in the area. 
uh, just drop off your stuff. And, uh, of course, uh, they or us will make sure that it gets to where it uh, needs to be. Most toy drives in Ontario uh, are making their final pushes over the next few days in order to uh, get all of these to their destination uh, on time. Sawyer Bogdan has covered this story for Global and now joins us to talk about, uh, you know, the problem and on the charities right the way across the land are seeing. Sawyer, Bo- uh, Sawyer Bogdan with us, online journalist for Global News based out of Barrie and here now. Sawyer, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So, Sawyer, this seems to be something we're hearing uh, certainly right across Ontario and probably all across Canada. Uh, People just have a little less to give this time out. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise. We've we've written a number of stories about how people in Ontario and across the country are struggling with the cost of living right now. And when the Christmas season comes, uh, that also translates to whether or not you can afford presents under the Christmas tree. What are you hearing from charities in your area about uh, not only demand, but supply coming in? Well, we are we are hearing from local charities and uh, charities across Ontario right now um, that they are struggling. The demand is higher than they've ever seen. Um, charity in Innisfil that helps locals there in the last five years has seen their number the number of families in need triple. With that, the demand for more toys and unfortunately, a lot of families this year are struggling to think about how they're going to put presents under their Christmas tree. And donations are just coming in slower because of that, because it's harder for them to think about, well, how do I get my kids a gift versus how do I also make sure that other people have gifts as well? Uh, Many charities are looking to other ways uh, other than toys, trying to help with uh, maybe food items or uh, or cash donations or other things to try to make up for it. Do you see that, um, unfortunately, because affordability has become such an issue, it's more about the basic necessity needs than uh, toys, unfortunately? I think in a lot of cases, um, that is true. Obviously, charities, if you can't afford to buy a whole toy, they're asking, you know, even just a couple of dollars will help because those dollars will add up and then the charities will go out and buy kids a present. Um, I know this year for a lot of families, they are thinking about those basic necessities. Um, But we also have to remember that in a lot of cases, the toys that these charities provide, um, they say those are going to be the only toys under a kid's Christmas tree this year. So I don't think um, as we get into Christmas and we think about basic necessities, I think that joy of Christmas also can't be overlooked for many families who just don't get a lot the entire year. Are as we getting town as we we talked about. Obviously, uh, charities are into their final push now. As we uh, get up towards uh, Christmas and such, obviously these have to be distributed and, and, and such. So, uh, in many cases, done before uh, actual Christmas. Are are they seeing donations increase as people get towards Christmas? Uh, are they hoping for more of an uptick? What, what's the message you're hearing? I think they're definitely still looking for that uptick. I I know a couple of charities and other communities put out statements saying, hey, we're, you know, in Guelph, they were, uh, the Salvation Army said they were 200 uh, Christmas toy hampers short this year of the families Mm -hmm. in need. So we're definitely seeing charities say, hey, we're still here. We're still collecting. Um, Like you said earlier, this weekend is the kind of final push for a lot of charities just so they can make sure to get presents wrapped up in time and out to families to have under the Christmas tree. Um, but they definitely are pushing, uh, giving that, giving it that final push. If you have a couple of dollars, even if you can't afford a whole toy, I know they're saying every little bit helps. Um, the, one of the charities we spoke to in Innisfil says, you know, we'll be collecting past Christmas time, uh, for presents. They Mm. serve kids all year round, but they basically said, you know, every kid will have a present under the tree. We're going to make sure there's a present for every kid. We'll buy it. And then hopefully the donations will come in after Christmas Mm. to cover those expenses because we don't want any kid to go without this year. So they definitely are trying to make it happen by any means possible. 
Yeah, and the, you know, if, as you mentioned, the people who work tirelessly every year to make this happen, to make sure somehow by, you know, the deadline that they 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 get it done per se. So uh, keep trying, keep pushing. Sawyer Bogdan with us, online journalist for Global News, based out of Barrie, talking about most toy drives across Ontario uh, having difficulty trying to fill their needs. Sawyer, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You as well. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, is with us. And I want to read you the first paragraph of his latest. Trudeau tries to sneak through another uh, another carbon tax. Uh, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's hammer is higher taxes. People are using too much natural gas. Hit them with a carbon tax. People are liking their pickup trucks and minivans. Throw another tax at them. People still want oil, uh, Canada's oil and gas. Swing the tax hammer again. With Trudeau's announcement of a cap on the oil and gas sector, Ottawa is now flirting with its third carbon tax. And to talk more about all of this, the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Franco Terrazano, Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thank you for having me on today. So, Franco, I mean, there's been a little question about the carbon tax of late. The parliamentary budget officer says, um, you know, obviously it's not helping us hit our targets. It's it's about raising money, blah, 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 blah. Uh, is carbon tax become a bad phrase now? Is it will will you hear it be called a carbon tax as we move forward? Well, I think everyone outside of Ottawa is calling it a carbon tax. And I think everyone essentially outside of Ottawa is not in favor of the carbon tax. I mean, look at the poll numbers. You see the support for carbon taxes plummeting. And the reason that is, is, hey, folks, you know, last year we just had a 40-year high inflation. Okay, so people were really struggling with the necessities, struggling to put uh, fuel in their car to get to work or take their kids to hockey practice, worried about their natural gas bills during the winter, worried about their grocery bills. And of course, the carbon tax makes all of that more expensive. Worse yet, the carbon tax isn't doing anything to actually help the environment. So I think many Canadians are kind of scratching their heads right now saying, why are we paying another tax on top of a mountain of regulations that make life more expensive? when this thing isn't even helping the environment and we just had a 40-year high inflation. Whenever you're on Franco or someone who speaks the same sort of language that you're talking about, they'll say, well, we've got to save the planet and this is the way that most agree that it has to be done, um, certainly in this country anyway. What do you, what's your response to that? Hey, I thought I was one of a kind, Scott. Come on. No, that's <laughs> a great question. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you asked it. Um, but here's the thing, right? Like, so what evidence do we have that the carbon tax is helping the environment? Well, we have none. In fact, it's the other way around. And let me take us to the West Coast, to British Columbia, our friends out there. They were the first to put in a carbon tax in Canada. It was in 2008. And they, for the longest time, had the, large, uh, the, the highest carbon tax in all the land, right? But even with the highest carbon tax for many years in British Columbia, emissions continue to go up. Why do emissions go up even when a carbon tax is in place? Because the carbon tax taxes necessities. If you have to drive to work, you have to drive to work. If you have to heat your home, which we all do during winter, you have to heat your home. When you go to the grocery store, you have to buy foods, right? So the carbon tax isn't reducing emissions. It reduces the other money that people have in their budgets for other necessities, right? So it just leaves people with less money to, to sock away for their kids' education or other types of priorities. Now, compound all of that with the fact that Canada makes up, what, 1.5% of emissions, and then you really understand the issue with the carbon tax. And that's that, look, making it more expensive to, to stay fed, to stay warm, to essentially stay alive in Canada will do absolutely nothing to reduce the emissions in places like China, Russia, India, or the United States. So when people ask me about the environment, I say everyone in Canada cares about the environment. The carbon tax is just a very costly and if I can say fake way to help the environment, because it's not. What about those when uh, you were talking about BC and that example there, uh, highest carbon taxes uh, and going higher through emissions or higher emissions? Many have said that it would be even higher if those were not there. Well, that's not what Canadians were sold, or that's not what the people are sold, right? When people talk about carbon taxes, and when I say people, I mean politicians, they try to sell us on two things. Number one, they try to say that it helps the environment. Okay, well, think about it in a global perspective here. How are we helping the environment if we chase away investment that would come to Canada, that would produce in a more environmentally friendly way, 
But thanks to all these different types of taxes, especially the third one, that's just going to chase away investment to other countries, right? So you're not necessarily reducing any production. You're just shifting away production from Canada to other parts of the world, whether that's, you know, maybe in South America, maybe in uh, Asia or, or what have you, right? So all we're doing is we're losing tax revenue in Canada, right? We're losing jobs in Canada. We're harming the economy in Canada and chasing away investment to other places. Now, the second thing that can that politicians try to sell us with the carbon tax is, hey, folks, don't worry, you'll get a rebate. It'll all be good. But that math doesn't work out. And you mentioned the parliamentary budget officer off the top, and his report shows that for like the average family in Ontario, the carbon tax is costing them about $400 to $500 this year, even after the rebates they get back. So on both of those claims that politicians like to make who are in favor of the carbon tax, they're both just wrong. What about it changing habits? I'm playing devil's advocate here, Franco. What about changing habits? More people are buying EVs because of this. But it, but it doesn't really change habits, right? And, and the reason is, is what those wonky economists like to say, inelastic demand. What does that mean in the real world? It means that if you need to fuel your car, you need to fuel your car. You have to, right? If you're working in Port Hope and you have to drive to Richmond Hill to get to work, and I know that commute because my mom did it for years, well, you have to take the car, right? Or if you have to heat your home, you have to heat your home. And for many Canadians, you got to use natural gas. Well, you're not just going to not heat your home during the winter months. Or if you have to, if you're a farmer and you have to dry grain or you have to heat your barn with natural gas or propane, you have to do it. There, there are no ifs, ands, or buts. Right. So when the carbon tax is also applied on the farmer using natural gas and propane, those costs trickle down to the grocery store. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. His latest Trudeau tries to sneak through another carbon tax. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Keep up the good fight. We'll chat later. Hey, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, everyone. Writing in the Globe and Mail a couple of days ago, Kelly Kreiderman says that it's not crazy for Canadians to think that the carbon tax is hitting their pocketbooks. Uh, she writes, the Prime Minister told the Canadian press that the Conservatives have unfairly but successfully scapegoated carbon pricing for why everything costs so much. But Justin Trudeau is better to look in the mirror as he examined Pierre Polyev's persuasiveness. Why is the Conservative leader's axe attacks ma- uh, mantra so potent? First, because people stretched by mortgage payments and grocery costs are looking for clear, simple solutions even though Mr. Polyev's answers might be far from complete, but also uh, pointedly because there are actual costs to the uh, carbon price and because the Liberals ignored regional and sectoral concerns about their signature policy until it was politically expedient to do otherwise carve out. Uh, this undermines the Liberals' moral arguments in favor of carbon pricing. And to talk more about this uh, from the Globe and Mail, Kelly Kreiderman is with us based in Alberta. Kelly, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Are attitudes changing towards the carbon tax? Because it seemed at one time, you know, as long as you were saving the planet and, and it was all for good, Canadians were more than happy to, to shell out money. Uh, obviously, uh, organizations or what have you, like the Parliamentary Budget Officer, uh, has said that this isn't making an impact on targets and such. Are, are people now starting to question this? I, I think they are, and I think they are for a lot of reasons. I think um, climate will continue to be a concern for Canadians. Um, how you develop climate policy, how you pay for it, that will all continue to be a debate. And what I say is, you know, imagine a country uh, that doesn't have a name, an imaginary country where housing costs have gone up like they have, like where grocery costs have gone up like they have. and even if you're using your imagination a little bit, you can uh, imagine the anger that would come from a population that's been faced with these types of increasing costs. And and there has been a, a lack of recognition of that. And there's a lack of recognition that even something like a carbon price, which, you know, a lot of people do get a rebate every year. A lot of people are not affected by it, but it does have an effect on the larger economy. It also has an effect um, when you're talking about regional differences. Do Canadians understand this tax or how it is supposed to work? Or is it, yeah, it's for good. So here, go ahead. I, I, I think that's a question too, because I think the framing of the tax, it has been about climate, but there's also been a lot of discussion around affordability 
as well. And, and there's been a lot of discussion from the federal local government that eight out of 10 households get more uh, or get more than they, in, they get in rebates more than they put pay in carbon pricing. So I think that messaging has been very clear from the Liberal government and sometimes confuses um, what a carbon price is about, which is to change behavior, which is to get people to use less in the way of fuels. It also hits in different parts of the country in different ways. The reason why the federal Liberals took the carbon price or paused the carbon price in Atlantic Canada is because the home heating oil that people use more in Atlantic Canada, that was being taxed and people were really feeling the effect there. Mm -hmm. The the Liberals made a political choice to pause the carbon price there because they're losing support. There are people in Ontario, there are people in Saskatchewan, there are people in Alberta, in other parts of the country who are paying more for their natural gas and are paying more for a carbon price on certain types of fuels who are suffering because of the carbon price, those concerns are not being given the same weight. And there's a question of fairness in all of this as well. Uh, is that when the wheels started to come off this for the Prime Minister when Atlantic Canada got, uh, Canada got the carb out? <laughs> I, think, I think that's when it became blatantly clear that the carbon price was subject to politics. You know, and I wrote in the column that Quebec has a lower carbon price than provinces like Ontario, like Alberta, like Saskatchewan that are subject to the federal backstop. The carbon price per unit is not as high. And that's always been overlooked. But what the pause on uh, the carbon price in Atlantic Canada, it was make obvious that political considerations do come into this. And, And that's the problem. That's why everybody is seeing the unfairness at this moment. There's also a private member's bill that had been making its way through the House of Commons and the Senate that's now kind of been thrust into limbo, but it had to do with concerns about farmers paying carbon price on the heating of barns, the cooling of barns, the drying of grain. And there was a lot of testimony given in the House of Commons about how many farmers do not have an option. But that that is not getting political attention in Ottawa right now from the from the governing Liberals. Do you think that uh, the government can sell or convince people that, oh, yeah, this is just good for Atlantic Canada. It's not for everybody else. Do you think they can convince uh, the rest of Canada that that's the case? Or is is this going to require more carb outs or reversing what has happened in Atlantic Canada? You know, you know, the provincial finance ministers were meeting in Toronto uh, today. There is no sign with uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland. There is no sign that there is any carve-outs or movement on this policy coming out of that meeting. I don't think there's any sign. I think the federal liberals are worried about giving up more space in this area, more credibility in this area. And I don't think they realize there would be such a swift and negative political reaction to in Atlantic Canada. It's hard to imagine that they did or, or they wouldn't have yeah. made the decision. But the affordability crisis, the housing crisis that we're facing in Canada right now weighs on everything and it changes everybody's view of everything. And even if we are talking about a small difference to inflation based on the carbon price, that is weighing on people right now, especially in those regions or sectors where the carbon price might mean more. And especially as the carbon price increases all the way to 2030 when it will be $170 per tonne. How do, we've only got a few seconds left here, mm-hmm. uh, Kelly, but how does, how does the U.S. get away without a carbon tax? Well, oh, that's, that's a long discussion, but uh, you know, it, they've, you know there's, it's never really been a serious discussion in the United States. Of course, there's no cap on oil and gas emissions in the United States either. They have taken a path on climate policy of incentivizing, say, the EV industry with, of course, we're talking billions and billions of dollars, but mm-hmm. I think they have taken more a carrot approach in the United States rather than the stick approach uh, that the federal government has taken to to some extent in Canada. Hmm. Kelly Kreiderman with us, Globe and Mail, the latest. Uh, Canadians aren't crazy to think that carbon pricing is hurting their pocketbooks. Kelly, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott.
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Writing in the Toronto Sun, Joe Warmington notes that they can spend millions of taxpayers' dollars to rename the main square in Toronto's downtown, but no one will ever call it Sankofa Square. Uh, this is a very bizarre turn of events. And, you know, you might remember this was a debate a while ago over changing the name of Dundas Street um, in Toronto and Dundas Square, uh, obviously right downtown. And But obviously Dundas goes a long way, the road, uh, including a town here just outside of Hamilton or within the boundaries of Hamilton, also called Dundas. Uh, and what has happened is council, city council in Toronto, and I know, you know, well, it's Toronto, it's not Hamilton, but I don't know. It's a long road. Um, they have dropped the name Dundas from Dundas Square. That's kind of surprising enough kind of quietly, without much debate. Uh, but they've already renamed it, which to me is equally as flabbergasting. Joe Warmington is with us, columnist with the Toronto Sun. He's here now. Joe, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I've been pretty upset about this. I mean, you know, because it's not just the name change and all that. The whole thing is stupid. It's unfair. It's a waste of money. It's also incorrect. I mean, the notion that Henry Dundas, who I never knew existed until they started this, is some sort of a uh, you know racist slave owner or something? It's the opposite of that. He was he was the guy that wanted to get rid of slavery and did get rid of it. And so you know it's it's just it's it's just the left trying to you know the socialist kind of left, the hardcore you know the ones that hate Toronto and hate Canada. It's extreme. That's and, it's ex, it's extreme. It's the extreme left, Joe. It is, and they've done it. And they they planted a flag right in the center of the city. And when they do something like that and say, we're going to take away the center of your city and not going to be called Young and Dundas anymore. By the way, they'll get back to trying to rename Dundas Street. They just did this for now. You're going to change the you know, name of the subway station there and the Dundas West Station. And there's a library that has Dundas in it. But they've done things before that. Like, if you look at that square, that, you know, I used to live right at Pantages Tower there. So I, I know the square well when they were building it. I also helped organize a rally for the troops in 2006 there. And so, you know, with Gordon Lightfoot and, and, and all of that. So, you know, it, it was supposed to be like a mini Times Square. What do they do? They put a opioid injection site on the northeast corner. And then over on the other side, the Bond Place Hotel, which was a hotel that brought people from around the world. That was not bad there. And then they turned it in the pandemic into a homeless shelter. And now the city has bought it. And they're going to make that a homeless shelter. It's a big building. And so the square is kind of like, as I called it in the column that I did in the Toronto Sun, a sort of a staging area for all of this indigent, you know, very, very troubled people jonesing and overdosing and, you know, uh, punching each other with knives, guns, sexual assault. Police are there at all times, screaming, hollering, throwing up, all kinds of other things I won't mention. That's our Dundas Square. They're going to change this to something called Sam Kofa Square. I had never heard that, that term before. And the more you look into it, it makes even less sense than it ever did. But whatever it is from Ghana or you know, looking to the past and bright future, whatever they're trying to claim, Ghana had... Uh, slave trade. Canada didn't. And Ghana is a great place. Great people from there. I know some, I have some neighbors from there. I'll tell you something. It's not Toronto and it's not Canada. Uh, You know, they should have their own history there. Toronto history is fine. It's fine the way it is. Dundas Square. Are you surprised that this happened? Like, I'm surprised, A, it, ha- it happened sort of under a cloak of secrecy. I mean, there wasn't much ch- chatter about it. And then, you know, that's one thing to remove Dundas from the name, but then to come up with another name without any kind of public uh, input whatsoever, that just blows me away. Yeah, I am a little surprised, although I, I'll tell you, I smelled something and I didn't know what it was. I smelled a rat earlier in the week when they were floating the idea, and they, they actually did this today. They approved to have Rob Ford Stadium at Centennial Park, uh, named after the, the late great mayor. He was a troubled mayor. All the people that pushed for this hated him. They blocked other efforts to name something after him before. But they were out front on this one. Now I know why. 
this was a how she going? Don't look over here. We're going to do that over there kind of move. And, you know, again, that shows you the political savvy of Olivia Chow and the people around her. It doesn't fool us now because now we see what they're doing. I'll just say this about the Raw. I, I'm glad on one hand that Rob Ford is getting that stadium. I mean, it's fitting and it's, it's the appropriate thing for him for a, a former mayor. But I don't think he would have approved of this. He would never have approved of Sankova Square, whatever the hell that is. And he wouldn't have approved of, of them naming a stadium after him and changing the name if it cost the taxpayers even one red penny. You know he wouldn't have, because that's not who he was. But what what they, is... They pulled, they pulled his legacy, Scott, into yeah. their wasteful city spending, if you know what I mean. And yeah. it's sort of a double whammy for them. So uh, I guess the Rob Ford uh, trade-off is is worth the square. I don't know what no, is the fallout. Uh, what? what I, well, yeah, obviously that was what they were thinking. What's the fallout with this, though? I mean, is this done? Are Torontonians going to accept this? Torontonians just do what they're told. I mean, they're half asleep. You know, they let all this go. Even us in the media don't didn't see it coming, really. So, I mean, I've had you know, it'd be interesting to hear what your callers have to say about it. Uh, I think of Dundas all the time because Mike Brokaffy was our great legendary Sunday Sun editor. He passed away a couple of years ago. I was, I've been, he lived in Dundas and I was there, beautiful town. And I thought about that a lot. I mean, they're going to have to change the name Dundas, the town of Dundas. Yeah. There's no way they should. <laughs> and it's especially on false information. It's been spun. And they've done the same thing to Sir Johnny McDonald in Hamilton and here in Toronto, Queens Park, and obviously Kingston and Picton and, and Victoria, BC and other places. And then so will, the, will, will we see the removal of Pierre Trudeau's name from airport in, in Quebec? Well, I would fight against it, um, but he was no angel. And same with Jack Layton. I would fight against them taking that off the ferry terminal. and this I, I, agree. I agree with you 100%. I don't think anything should be removed. But no. if you're doing that, how can the name Pierre Trudeau stay on an airport? How do you, how do you justify one and not the other? The um, because the left can justify anything they want. They're they're here to, as I said, they've got an agenda, and it's just to change everything that you know that ever was into something that we don't recognize, and that's what Sankovis. Uh, you have to be honest with me. You and I both know if we could talk a year from now, if we're still doing this, no one's going to call Dundas Square Sankofa Square. No one. Even the Sankofa family, if there is one, I'm going to call it that. It's Dundas Square, Young Dundas Square. If you have to name it after, if you want to name it after somebody, maybe Gordon Lightfoot. But, you know, even that, I don't, I don't think uh, I'm for that either. But it's better than Sankofa. But uh, I guess Sankofa was a bird, and it, it represents sort of a concept of yeah. looking to the past and doing something yeah. better. Well, I'll tell you something. How about doing this? Go to the past, the great country of Canada which, you know, Henry Dundas and Sir Johnny McDonald and people like that built. And it's a place that's so great that people from all over the world come here, and they, and they do well here. I know that the interpreter, my interpreter from Afghanistan, Raider, and his family, they helped bring here, and they love it here. And they're doing great, and they're contributing. And, you know, I'm so, so proud of this country for what we do. I'm not proud of this, though, uh, because our history does matter, and our first prime minister matters, and they're allowed to be human. Why, why does the left get to decide, as you said, which you know, politician from the past has flaws and which one needs to be canceled? How do they have that power? Joe Warmington with us from the Toronto Sun. Sneaky renaming of Dundas Square to Sankoba Square is revisionist madness, is the latest in the Toronto Sun from Joe. Joe, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. All the best. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we heard earlier on this week changes coming to uh, the way alcohol, beer, wine, specifically cider, sold in this province. And, and, and getting most of the attention was, you know, away from the beer store and into uh, uh, corner stores and such. But there's lots other stuff in there that has the grape growers of Ontario excited as well. Let's talk more about that. Debbie Zimmerman is with us, CEO of the Grape Growers of Ontario, and here now. Debbie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, it's doing well. How are you? Very good. Thanks so much. Tell everybody right. what tell everybody what the objective is. What what do the grape growers of Ontario do? What does your organization do? Yeah, so we are um, we um, what our core function is is that uh, we represent 500 farm families across the province of Ontario who grow uh, grapes, processing grapes for wine. 
And what was in this announcement that uh, perhaps didn't make uh, all the headlines and such that is of interest to the grape growers? Well, I think I think uh, I I first of all I want to thank the government of Ontario. This is probably one of the biggest changes we've had since prohibition, quite mm. frankly. Where where we'll be able to access Ontario wine across the province of Ontario right now, which is quite restrictive because the LCBO has literally been the the only place beyond the wineries where we could sell wine. So with the government programming and particularly what they call an uncapped BQA support program, uh, we have had a program in the past, but it was capped to a limit. We'll now help the mid to um, smaller wineries as well as all the wineries that sell 100% Ontario grown VQA wine to be able to access markets across the province. And it's been very limiting in the past. And so while this has been sort of quietly um, being encouraged for the government to do something about it, what they did yesterday was a huge opportunity for us to grow more grapes for more Ontario wine. What how what will the immediate effect be on grape growers and wineries? Does this immediately mean that you've got more outlets? You can put it anywhere yeah. you want, basically. Yeah, and I think one of the big things is it's um it's it is that opening up of those opportunities across the province, whether it's at convenience stores or whether it's going to be in grocery stores, even some of the the big box. I mean it gives us that chance to access more opportunities across the province. And, you know, we only own 9% of our market share in this province. The rest is owned by imports. So when you think mm. about that, we have an endless opportunity to displace a lot of imports on the shelf. And why not invest in Ontario first? That's been the message the government has been delivering. And we support that message because we are a product that is grown, processed and bottled in Ontario. And the economic value of one bottle of wine is $98 for every bottle mm. of wine that is sold in the province of Ontario. So that's significant. I thought you were going to say that's the tax on it, Debbie, but no, no. I'm just kidding there. The I'm kidding, I'm yeah. kidding. But I would say you've got to look at what the ancillary benefits are that comes from a bottle yeah. of wine. We have wineries, we have restaurants, we have all of the, the areas across the province, whether it's Prince Edward County, southwestern Ontario, or Niagara. People know that you just don't go and have a glass of wine. You go and have an experience. And that's yeah. what we're also promoting. Are you surprised this has taken so long? I mean, you look at other provinces in the in the country. You look at the United States, even Europe. I mean, it just seems so antiquated. Well, I, I agree with you. You know, and, and the premier used a really great example. And some people may listening may recall when their parents went in and had a a little slip of paper and they shoved it through a kiosk yeah. to get get yeah. a bottle in a brown bag. I'm hoping that we've grown up, but you're right. The rest of the world is is taking a different approach to the products that we produce being wine. It's often treated as something that they, they incur um, when they may have a glass of wine with their dinner. And why not celebrate what we can do in this province? And we do it very well in Ontario. In fact, we're the largest wine region in Canada. And it has taken us time even to catch up with British Columbia, who, quite frankly, is ahead of the game. So what's next? What's the next ask for grape growers and the wineries? Yeah, you know what our expectations are, that we will continue to have an industry that will be strong and resilient for that next generation of growers. And that's what we're concerned about. And we expressed that to the government was this wasn't just about getting money into the system. This was ensuring the government was going to build a system that gave growers and their families and that next generation of growers, of which we're very proud of, to take over a farm that's going to be sustainable, maintain that green belt, which we all prize in this province, and open that door for their future. So what the government did yesterday is they given us a fighting chance for the future, and it's long overdue. And, you know, Debbie, you brought up another point. I mean, there's so many different facets to this, but, you know, you talk about the family farm and what they've been facing over the last decades yep. or so. And here's here's a way for them to continue uh, and, and keep this growing. So that, that's another uh, valued, uh, another valuable point in all of this. Uh, Debbie Zimmerman with us, CEO of the Grape Growers Association or the Grape Growers of Ontario. I'm sorry, the Grape Growers of Ontario, uh, giving a thumbs up and a big cheers to new changes in provincial regulations around the selling of beer and wine. Debbie, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Happy holidays. 
I don't need to tell you, it is uh, coming to the end of a tumultuous economic year. Man, it has uh, squeezed and pinched us all. Uh, inflation, affordability, uh, the price of groceries, housing, uh, fuel, and such. Uh, we're certainly seeing uh, and feeling uh, the fallout of a post-global pandemic world. Now there seems to be talk of disinflation in some quarters. There was an article in the Toronto Star and Hamilton Spectator about this uh, earlier today. But the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem says 2024 will be a year of transition and it is too soon to consider rate hikes where yesterday we were hearing uh, coming out of the United States when their rates stayed steady that cuts would be coming uh, next year. Is this all about the messaging? Let's bring in Colin Mang, Assistant Professor Economics, McMaster University, expert on fiscal policy, labor uh, economics and the cost of living. Colin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. It's great to be here. So, Colin, it seems like we're getting kind of mixed messaging here, and I guess we're all trying to look into a crystal ball. Is the Bank of Canada being very careful with its messaging? Yeah, I think they really are. I mean, the Bank of Canada doesn't try to get too out of line with what's going on in the United States, because, of course, they are our major trading partner. And, you know, if our monetary policy differs a lot from theirs, uh, that could have, you know, some pretty big economic implications for us. So I think the Bank of Canada is being quite cautious. Now, one thing to note is that, you know, the United States is still growing pretty rapidly, whereas here in Canada, we've seen the economy slow down, you know, quite a bit over the last uh, quarter or so. So, you know, the bank, I think you're absolutely right. They are just being very, very cautious. Uh, They didn't raise rates this month, and I don't think they'll raise rates again, but I think it may still be some time before they cut. Why is the U.S. growing and Canada not? Uh, well, um, in the in the U.S., you're still seeing a, a lot of uh, their federal government uh, spending money. Uh, their their budget deficit's much larger than ours is here. So the federal government is still stimulating the economy. And that's really pushing up growth in the United States right now. Whereas in Canada, uh, we're starting to see a, a contraction uh, as the government is trying to wind down the programs that it had during the pandemic and trying to you know constrain its spending. I thought it was the opposite, Colin, that we were the latest, mm-hmm. the last to pull things back. Uh, no, I mean in, in Canada, the government has um, you know started to reduce it, its pandemic spending. Our uh, deficit, uh, relative to the size of our GDP, is a bit smaller, uh, and as well, the debt that we racked up is much smaller as a share of GDP than we've seen uh, in other uh, Western countries. So, I think you're starting to see that impact here. Uh, the fact that things are leveling off in the United States uh, and that they're predicting rate cuts uh, into next year, is that a reasonably solid indicator for Canada, despite the messaging from the Bank of Canada? Yeah, I think we will start to see gradual rate cuts. I mean, if you look at what the bank had to say recently, so they do think that inflation is going to remain at about three to three and a half percent for the following year and, and that it will return to two percent by 2025. Uh, but I think the bank will be, you know, fairly cautious over the coming year. Uh, you might start to see some rate cuts in the spring or maybe by summertime, but I think they're going to move slowly. I mean, the United States did kind of indicate that they might see up to three rate cuts next year. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that we would see three in Canada. What is the sweet spot in Canada for a Bank of Canada rate? You want to guess, take a, take a stab at that? Well, I mean, I think by the time we get back to 2% inflation, I think they're probably going to have rates around 3 3.5%, so down from 5% today, uh, but not much below that. I don't think we're going to be seeing the bank go back to you know the 1% to 1.5% that we saw earlier. Uh, the Bank of Canada governor says this will be a 2024 will be a transition year. What does that mean? Well, I think they're going to they're going to watch out with what's happening with prices overall. I mean, we are still seeing prices for some goods going up, whereas prices for other goods have started to level off. Some some goods prices have started to go down. So, you know, if you think about uh some of your basic groceries, uh comparing where we were last year. Uh some things like, you know, wheat, brown rice, uh, chicken breast are about the same price as they were last year. Some things like lettuce are, are uh, significantly down. So like iceberg lettuce is 9% cheaper than it was last year. Romaine lettuce is like 30% cheaper than it was last year. 
some things have been going up and continue to go up, you know, quite substantially. So things like, you know, pork shoulders, beef top sirloin, if you're a uh, you know, fan of those, those are up 25 and, and then 33%. Uh, apple and orange juice are up 20%. So, you know, we're still seeing, you know, pretty wide disparity in price changes among some of those, you know, main staple items that a lot of households buy. And so I think prices- the Bank of Canada is going to watch out for that. Are prices yeah. coming down enough for people to notice? Uh, like you said, you know, you've just told us about various categories where the prices are coming down, but within the last year or two have gone up so high, it's still quite a ways higher than what we're used to and, and, and not enough to offer relief. Is that accurate? Yeah, in terms of what people are going to notice, I mean, one of the big things that I think people are going to notice is that the price of gasoline is way down. I mean, just driving into work yesterday, I saw it was only a you know a dollar thirty five, which is you know, compared to just a few months ago when you were paying a dollar fifty, dollar sixty. You know, that looks like a really good deal, and you know that's going to have knock on impacts because when you look at fuel prices, they're a, a big contributor to a lot of goods and services which have to be shipped. But, you know, in terms of grocery prices, I think sometimes people will notice that some prices have leveled off, but that the prices of some goods are still rising. And the hard part that households are still facing is that, you know, uh, you know just the cost of housing has risen so substantially. Mm. That puts such pressure on household budgets that, you know, even if food prices are leveling off, it's still difficult to afford your groceries because you've got mm. to spend all your money on rent or on your mortgage payments. Good so I, I think it's still going to be difficult for households for the coming year ahead. Colin Mang with us, Assistant Professor Economics at McMaster University. And coming to the end of this year, what we can expect for next. Colin, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Final regulations for the new Online News Act show the amount of funding private broadcasters will get through the government's $100, sorry, $100 million deal with Google. Um, the regulations released today say CBC Radio Canada will get no more than $7 million of the share of the annual fund, $30 million at the most received, uh, reserved for other broadcasters. To talk more about this, Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you are also. What are your thoughts here, Jeff, of, of as we're starting to see this? I guess there's still a lot of stuff that isn't uh, we're not aware of at this point, but now at least we're trying to figure out how and who gets a piece of what. How, how do they decide who gets what? Well, I think they're looking at mostly uh, print and digital outlets. Um, you guys are going to get some. Uh, CBC will get much less than they expected. Uh, which in that case, I think is appropriate. I wasn't sure that the CBC should be eligible for anything since they're already getting a billion dollars a year from the federal government. But I think overall, this is a good start, as they say. I think that on average, it'll give an extra $17,000 salary for each employee in print and in commercial broadcasting. I think that's that's a good thing. Um, I guess the, my worry is that there's, there's no free lunch and it kind mm-hmm. of gets the government foot inside the door of journalism. Um, and maybe that's okay. Maybe I'm just being unduly skeptical and suspicious, which I guess I am. But I think that um, everybody has to be really careful that the government doesn't say, okay, we've given you this money. Now we want to have a say in which stories you're doing and then how you're doing those stories. And I think that's so, that's my worry. Um, I want to put that out there right away and hope that it doesn't happen. Um, so more of what some are uh, suspect with the CBC, that because they do receive so much uh, funding or receive funding, uh, that they are biased in some way. You're worried that now with the government giving money that that will be perceived with all media. Well, I mean, that's always a danger. And uh, yeah. the issue at the CBC 
in my time, full disclosure, I was there for 21 years. And in my last uh, go round there, I, I ran the uh, radio news service, uh, News and Current Affairs. Um, I think that the, in my time, I'm not saying it was perfect. Huh, maybe it was, but I, it, it, uh, other people might have another point of view. I think that that the CBC at its best is actually has a skeptical eye about where the money comes from and what kind of buffers, psychological buffers need to be in place to make sure that you're not, um, you know, playing anybody's game. Um, at the most, I think that the CBC has been actually quite critical of the government, partly because they don't want to be seen to be carrying any water for the government just because right. their money comes from there. And I think that that's, that can be overplayed, of course, but I think in, in the end, the CBC has done uh, overall a pretty good job of covering the government and not and not and holding the government to account um now there is a certain nervousness in inside the management offices but at the new, at the newsroom level on the shop floor i sense that they, they know what their job is and they do it as well as they can under present circumstances where does this go, Jeff? Like, is this a temporary thing? Is it a temporary fund? Is this the new norm? Is there supposed to be a new model developed out of this? What is this going to look like? I think the ideal is that this will be a kind of a permanent donation to support Canadian journalism at a time when Canadian journalism is suffering from the uh, from the from the way the the Digital culture has smashed the traditional roles of uh, relationships of between audiences and publishers and audiences and, and broadcasters. Um, people are saying, well, maybe we, you know, there, there's a real interesting vibe that I'm, I'm sensing now, which is that the sense of trust in the media, which has already been pretty shaky, is even more shaky now. And so the obligation is, in my opinion, for news organizations and for journalists to help the audience understand how the stories have come together and, and to give the audience a kind of a, a, a view into how journalism is practiced these days. Um, and I think that overall, most media organizations in this country do a pretty good job. They're not as partisan as they are in other countries, especially in the U.S. or even in in, in Britain. So I think that, but I think it would be really important for Canadian media to be on their guard to make sure that there is what's called an arm's length relationship between uh, the media organizations and the, the funders in the same way that you wouldn't want a sponsor to call you up and say, I don't want you to do the story this way. I want you to do it that way, or I don't want you to do it at all. And that's always a danger. Um, most, most sponsors are not that stupid. Uh, they, they understand how the system works, but I think it's important that Everybody be aware that there is now a new player in the game of uh, of journalism in Canada, and hopefully it'll mm. work out for the best because there are a bunch of real news deserts in this country, mostly out west and in the Maritimes. Here in southern Ontario, we're okay. We've got lots of lot, we we have a very generous assortment of media outlets, but in a lot of the country, they don't have that. So I think that the if the goal of this fund is to help those deserts bloom a little bit. That would be a good thing. Is there a new bottle to be found here? Uh, what will come of this? I mean, are we just, or are we just propping up archaic models? Are we propping up well, the past? I, I think you've you put your finger on it. I, I worry that the money will go and nothing will really change. Um, yeah. I hope the money will be used in the best way possible to maybe hire a couple more journalists and to and to do a little more investigative reporting and to spend a little more time helping the audience understand what we're doing or what you're doing 
Uh, I'm not in a newsroom anymore. Um, but I think that this is the potential for good is very good. The potential for uh, strange pressures on you guys is now been ramped up a little bit. So I would like I would like everybody to be a little more uh, cautious and respectful of the audience's needs. And I think that if this money goes to help that process, that would be great. All right, Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks a lot. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you read them in your Hamilton Spectator, the Scott Radley Show starring Scott Radley. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Hey, you want a traffic update before we get into anything else? Traffic sucks. I know. Ben told me you were stuck in traffic. Sorry about that. Where are you? No, this is so, you know what? If people are driving downbound on the highway from the mountain downtown, uh, it is barely moving. And here's Mm. the thing, Scott, that, you know, I was talking on the show, on my show, and I don't know what you want to talk about. So forgive me for hijacking your segment, but no, go ahead. Earlier in the week, we were talking about, you know, when they make Main Street to when they convert it to two way and when they bring the LRT down Dundurn onto Main, which will take two more lanes of Main Street, and then you've got two exit ramps, because Main Street is the main now entryway into the city of Hamilton. And all I can think is, this traffic today is going to be every single day, because you'll never be able to get off the highway. The the light at Dundurn is going to stop everything back onto the highway. It's going to be backed up forever. Yeah. This is like what we're what I'm driving in right now. I am absolutely convinced in whatever five whenever the LRT is finally done, this is going to be our everyday norm that everything to Burlington and almost to Brantford is going to be backed up. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, as the Bay Observer was reporting, you know, all the talks about one-way streets being converted to two, and in some situations, it's a great idea. But then it's sort of been like a blanket policy for the city that, oh, let's get rid of them all, and that's not necessarily, or certainly, something that hasn't really been studied that closely of whether it will actually help to move things or not. Well, so okay, so again, if you can visualize, and most people can, where the old Spectator Building is, yeah. you have the exit that comes off from um, from the highway coming down. You've got the one that's going to be by the, the Christ, the cathedral there. Um, yeah. That one's coming from the other way. You're going to have two lanes taken away because of the LRT. You're going to have a bike lane and broadened sidewalks. Um, as I say, like, what is problem? And then you've got everything stopping at Thunder and stopping at Queen, stopping at Bay, stopping at James. You're... To me, all you're going to have happen is everybody is going to be pushed onto Aberdeen and onto all the yeah. other sides. Yeah. yeah. People who think this is simply going to slow down traffic, it'll do that. It'll do that. But what's going to happen is all those people living on the side streets are now going to have 10 times the amount of traffic they ever did before. And I don't think they're going to be happy about it. Yeah, you want to slow traffic down, you just create gridlock, right? That works. Well, it, it will slow it down. It will slow it down. But, um, you know, Scott, and look, we, we're, I'm just talking about what's going to happen on a normal day. What happens when there's an accident on Main Street? Or what happens when there's an accident on the highway and now nobody can get off the highway, which happens five or six times a year when the traffic is completely backed up? I am sure they've had experts work through this and look at this and decide how the flow is going to work and everything else. I just, for the life of me, especially now that they've moved that LRT to come down Dundurn and turn right on the main, that was supposed to go across the park and not affect that. I just, for the life of me, I cannot figure out how this is not going to be the absolute worst traffic spot anywhere. Anyway. You bring up a you bring up a valid point because you know that Aberdeen exit and then on the Main Street and such, uh, and then if you as you come on to Main Street, you're coming onto a one way street. So that appears, well, depending if it's rush hour or not, to be able to handle the traffic flow. Once that stops, you're right. It's going to back up onto the 403. Yeah, take out take out two lanes now yeah, when you're yeah. at the control there. Take out two lanes for the LRT. 
and it's boy, yeah. it's going. It's going to be something. I don't know what other word to use. It'll be something. And and so uh, here's the thing. I know we got to go, but here's the thing about this that I think is going to be the upshot of it all, and I think it's unfortunate. I really believe what will end up being the result of all this is people who live outside the downtown will, after an experience or two of this, say, essentially, screw it, I'm not going downtown anymore. And I don't know that that's healthy for the city to have all the people who live in the suburbs say, unless it's an absolute emergency, I'm not going downtown. I don't think that's good. I'm not sure we've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's because, you know, there's there, there's a segment that want this, there's a segment that want that, and all we seem to do is provide information that justifies one's agenda as opposed to what's necessarily better for the city. And as you pointed out, the sad part is you probably won't see it till it's actually built. Uh, all right. Are, are you are you there? Are you there yet? Are you here yet? Are you close? Are you what? Where are you? In. I have just pulled into the parking lot, but yes, I, I want to say one more thing about the point you just made. I think it's a great point. We now, and I understand the vision zero. I understand the idea that we want safer roads. I absolutely sure. do, and I don't think that's a bad idea. But I agree with you. We will not fully understand what the new problems are until they are already in place and unchangeable. And then you watch. I, I make this prediction now, and Ben can clip this, and we can play it in five or ten years. Everyone's going to be saying, what are we doing? How do we undo this? Because this is now a horrible situation. And the new council at that time will then spend all kinds of time and money and studies trying to figure out how do we make traffic move better through Hamilton. All right. This continues after the 6 o'clock news on the Scott Radley Show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a good one. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This arriving via email from Steve, losing, lost, and gone. Is this, th- is this Canada or is it 20 other countries removing our heritage and customs for theirs? Can I legally even think such thoughts anymore? As ever, a confused Canadian, Steve. 